pray, and then we'll spend some, some time in the Word this morning. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come and, and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We ask that as we think about the truth that's found in your word and the truth about how we should appropriately respond to you and what that looks like biblically, we just ask that your spirit would be moving, that we would see the word correctly, and that you will help us not focus on the things that we shouldn't focus on, but focus on the things that we should. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So we are coming to our last sermon on this mini-series of worship, and we are talking about how we should worship together in a setting like this. Uh, I imagine that there's a lot of little rabbit trails that, want, that we could go down, and I want to try to avoid that. I also don't think it's very helpful for me to share all of the different theories about worship and all the different ways that other people worship. And I'll tell you why. Because that will only distract us from getting into the word to see what the Lord has to say about how we should worship him and what that worship looks like. And so I just want to spend time in the word, looking at the New Testament, asking what did the apostles expect from a local church? And how should a local church worship based off the expectation of the apostles? But before we go on, I I do want to... uh, restate some challenges that we might have in discussing this. Some, I don't know, predetermined uh, things that might be in our mind that might stop us from seeing the Bible, the, what the Bible has to say authentically, right? So we might have these, uh, these presuppositions about what church worship should look like, and because we have these presuppositions, when we see what the Bible has to say, we would go, well, that's not my experience of going to church. And I just want to share some of these so that we're aware of them, so that if you feel one of these attitudes or one of these presuppositions come up in your mind and go, now, wait a minute, I, I, w- I want you to realize that these are not necessarily the best way to think about how do we do church. So the first challenge that we all have in talking about how should we conduct church is we've all been to church. (laughs) We're at church right now, and we've been to several churches. We've been to several churches, and I don't know about you, but I've been in churches all around the world. You might not think like that's a big deal, but when we talk about how to do church, it is definitely a big deal because we've gone to these things, we've done these things that are called worship, And when we talk about worship, a lot of these flood into our mind. Now, they may be good, they may be bad. What I'm saying is it's a challenge. And sometimes, even when I'm reading the scripture and I see what the Bible has to say, I go, now, wait a minute, I had a different experience in church. We got to remember that the Bible is correct, regardless of my interpretation of it or my experience that I think is contrary to it. This is right. Okay. Second thing, I have friends that go to different churches, and they do things a little bit different at that church. And they might say, this is what we do when we worship. The question is not what does the neighbor do when the neighbor goes to church. The question that we need to ask and we need answered is, what does God want for us when we come to church? Here's another one, and this is quite, quite comical to me. Uh, I imagine if we had a 
quiz, a pop quiz on church history. I imagine that for many Americans, church history began with the birth of their pastor. Uh, And there's not a lot of knowledge of what happened hundreds, thousands of years ago and what those church services look like, and some of, the, some of the things that have come into the church from culture that has just become built into tradition that we do, that the Bible never tells us anything about doing that, but we do it because it's just built into our DNA that this is what church people do. I think if you just know the New Testament, and you know a little bit of church history, you will see through some of these things and go, yeah, no, that's not what, what was intended. Here, here's, here's what I think is another thing. Um, genuinely, I think other models are a lot more fun than the model that we have here. Yeah, th- there's a lot of things that, that will happen today in other churches that are far more entertaining and far more of a spectacle than what we're doing now. And that is a lot more fun. And let's be honest, whether we like it or not, we are still drawn to that which is more fun. Like, how many of us would rather go watch a movie or sit and listen to somebody describe their insurance policy. So for us, we, we, we do say, okay, if it's fun, if it's exciting, well, then that's where I want to go. The question isn't what's exciting and what's fun. The question is what is biblical. And I guarantee you when we do what's biblical and we have the right motives and we're walking with the Lord, our concern is I want to be holy And we are enamored with God, we're enamored with Jesus, we're enamored with his word, and I don't need fun. I just need more Jesus. I just need more Bible. And I become satisfied with him, right? There's another one, and you ready for this? We all have the flesh. You have to realize that since we all struggle with the flesh, we all bring in that baggage into our worship, our corporate worship. We all have competing attitudes that are not right. We all have competing goals that are not right. We all have, we all have things that we want accomplished that are not what God wants us to have accomplished. And we all come together into this building together and we interact with each other. And, and there are things that we say, I, I want this inside of the church, not because it honor, honors and glorifies God, not that it, that it edifies my brother and sister, but that it exalts me or it exalts what I want or, or, or it, it speaks to me. That is also an important thing in this discussion that we need to remember. Everything that we're doing should be against the flesh, right? This is not a fleshly activity. So the past month and a half, we've been discussing worship. We started to look at the wise men or the magi as they came to Jerusalem saying, where is the king? It's been born of the Jews. We've come to worship him. We've been discussing worship. We defined worship. Our working definition in this series is our appropriate response to God out of love, right? So I'm appropriately responding out of love for God's honor and glory. That's what worship is. We then discussed who worships. We said, well, biblically, everybody should worship, but they can't. Only believers can worship. Therefore, believers should worship. We asked the question, when should we worship? And by, by, by default, where should we worship? We said, well, it's kind of twofold, right? There's really never a time in which a believer should never be worshiping. We should always be worshiping. 
But there is this special thing in the New Testament. There's a special time where believers gather together under the, under the, the tutelage of the apostles on, on Sunday. And, and there seems to be a special emphasis on the Sunday worship. Not saying that this is the only time that believers can, can gather together. But there's, there's a specialness about Sunday and you should be worshiping all the time and Sunday. Then we asked, why should one worship? And the simple answer is God. The reason you and I should worship is because of God himself. Not only do I get the motivation to worship from God, I cannot worship unless God is working on my heart and motivating my heart to worship him. Without that, I don't want to worship. So so it has to be him. He's the one that's working on my heart. And then two, he himself is the object in which I'm worshiping And if I'm not enamored with him, satisfied with him, wanting to see him honored and glorified, if I'm not thinking about him, well, then then it's it's wrong. He is my motivation. I'm motivated to worship him because of who he is. Past couple weeks, we've been then asking the question, how should one worship? And we split this up into two parts. We said, all the time that you're not in church, how should you worship? And we discussed that last week. And this week... Like last week, we're going to do a quick overview of how we should worship when we come together in this setting. What, what, what needs to happen here? Okay, So let's start in John 4. John 4, and let's look at verse 23. Jesus says, But the hour is coming... And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You see, the definition of a genuine worshiper is somebody who is worshiping spiritually and truthfully. Right? That outside of church, that's what worship looks like. Spiritual and truthful. When we're in this building and we're doing what we're doing now, it has to be the same. It has to be spiritual and it has to be truthful. It has to be spiritual in this, that it is a product of the Holy Spirit working on our heart. It's a product of new birth, right? As God works in our heart, causes us to be born again, then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's a product of our redemption. It's a product of the Holy Spirit. It's a product of us yielding to the Holy Spirit. It's full of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's loving one another. It's in this room not wanting to cause a distraction for anyone else, but wanting others to hear the message of Jesus so that they're edified and they grow to be more like their son, Jesus Christ. It's are like God's son, Jesus Christ. It's this attitude that says we want to all be like Jesus and we want him to be honored and glorified. It's spiritual. Also, it's kind of interesting, and I'm not trying to offend anybody or, or, or anything, and I'm not trying to downplay a building because I'm very thankful for the building that we have that the Lord has given us. But you do understand that we could be over in the cow barn and still be worshiping together, it's not tied to this building. Now, this is, a lot far, this is a lot more pleasant than worshiping in a cow barn with manure, granite. But, but you understand the point. The point is, 
The people are the church. And when we gather together as groups of people in one location, we're the local church, and we're coming together. There's no such thing as sacred locations in the New Testament. We don't have sacred places. This place is not as any, any more sacred than any other place. Now, it's important. And what we do here, we set aside and we say this is an important place. This room is dedicated to the preaching of God's word. That's it. That, that's really what this, what this room is about. And so we set it aside as being something important. But I don't need this room and you don't need this room either. This is something that we come together as brothers and sisters and from our heart, from the product of the Holy Spirit, we exalt him and edify each other. We don't necessarily need to be in this location. We may say that public worship does require a location because we all need to know where to show up, right? Like, we can't just say, just let the Spirit lead you and we'll all just get together someday. No, there does need to be some organization in saying we're going to meet at such and such a place, at such and such a time. So in that case, I guess location may be important, but that's just so that we can get together. It's not that there's something sacred inside of this building. Now notice the second thing that Jesus says about this genuine worshiper, is that this genuine worshiper, yes, is spiritual, but it's also truthful. This this is something that is lost in the American church in the past decade, isn't it? That we are about the truth. Not about truth in general, but truth specifically found in God's word. That's what we're about. So corporately, when we come together, what is the hallmark of our meeting together? Truthfulness. Truthfulness from God's word. Past couple years, I've been, I've been saddened by many pastors who will say, we need to talk about the truth, and they've talked about truth, about stuff that isn't found in God's word and doesn't edify the believer and doesn't move the believer towards Jesus Christ, but they're talking about truth. Truth. We're about the truth. And so here's the truth about this subject. Here's the truth about this subject. And they spend time looking at the newspaper and and stating statistics. Statistics are fun, and that stuff's important to know, but that is not what this gathering together is about. This is about the truth that's found in Jesus Christ and in his word. That's what we're about. We're about this. Truthfulness. Truth. What is? What is reality? What is the truth about God? What is, what, what is he really asking of us? So the question then would be, what does this look like as we come together? What, is, what does it really look like to be spiritual? What does it look like to really be truthful? And so I'm just going to look at a couple passages Uh, The first one I want to look at is Acts chapter 2. My my kids, they they listen to the show called Adventures in Odyssey. I don't know if you've ever listened to that. There's there's this thing on Adventures in Odyssey where they have this this, uh, imagination station. You get inside and you get to go back and relive stuff. And I've, I've often wished that was real. And I wish I could go back to this time the day of Pentecost, to see what that was like. I wanted to see what it was like the day before the day of Pentecost. I wanted to see what happens at the day of Pentecost. And I really wanted to see what, I really like to see what this looked like in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is a unique time. You got, you got to understand, Acts chapter 2 is the birthday of the church. This is when the church was born. 
The church was born when the Holy Spirit fell on believers. We see the very first sermon from Peter. Incredible sermon. Incredible sermon. Then we get this snapshot of the early church. Now realize that this is a very, uh, it's not a very detailed snapshot. Obviously there are things that are going to be developed later on by other apostles that we'll see. Uh, so, for example, when it talks about the apostles' teaching, the apostle Paul has a lot to say about the content of that teaching and the method in which you are to teach. Okay, This just gives us what they did, and some of the things that they did become essential to public worship. As we look throughout the New Testament, the things that we see here are, are mentioned again and again. So this is a great snapshot and a great synopsis, as it were, of what public worship should look like and some of the basic things that are absolutely non-negotiable. These are non-negotiable. You do these, this is good. You don't do one of these, uh uh-oh. So just notice, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So just notice that. Uh, the, the sense here is that they're continually devoting themselves. And the sense of devotion here is that this is what they're doing. This is what they see as being the most important. This is, this, these are the necessary, obligatory things for them to do. These are the things that they said, we, this is what we're about. Okay? If they had a motto, they would say, this is what we're about. And notice the first thing that they're about. They're about the apostles' teaching. Remember, true worshipers worship in spirit, based upon the spirit and, the, and the, the prompting of the spirit. We'll see that later. But it's also based off of truth. The church is built on the apostles' teaching. That's it. We're not built on the, te- on the teaching of Moody Press, right? When I was in Bible college, we used to sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Schofield's notes and Moody Press. That is not... That is not what we're doing here, right? We are built on the apostles' teaching who were the spokesmen of Christ. That's it. That's what we're focused on. That's the truth we're focused on, the apostles' teaching. Praise the Lord that we have letters from the apostles to churches that show us what they emphasized in their teaching so that we can think about the things that God wants us to think about. We can be apostolic in our doctrine because we have the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to this. We'll look at this later of what this teaching looked like. Um, But they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Then notice the next thing. And the fellowship and the breaking of bread. The word here for fellowship is koinonia. Has the idea of having all things in common. Uh, Has this idea of association has this idea of like-mindedness. And and you can kind of see their fellowship and their love for one another as as you look down in the text in verse 44, for example. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. You see that? All things in common. this This isn't some sort of communist utopia, by the way. This is the idea that believers were like-minded. They were focused on the right things they cared for one another, and they, they said, you need help, and I'm able to help you with that? Here you go. That's, that's the attitude. It's like-mindedness. That's what they had in common. 
They're, they're resources. I'm willing to share my resources with you. I'm willing to share my time with you. It's this idea of coming together and living as a group of people, right? They had all things in common. And notice, he kind of goes on and explains this, and it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, uh, the proceeds to all who had need, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their, ho- in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So you see this, this thing, and later on it's going to be uh, explained. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians tells the churches, when you come together on the first day, take up a collection and keep that collection. That collection was for ministry, for people who needed it. So you see even here that even in the, the giving of money is not so much just so that the lights stay on, but it's, a, it's an attitude of fellowship saying, the Lord has blessed me with resources, and I want to share those resources with anyone who might have need for them. And so you then would give that to the church, and the church leadership would see, see to it that that money was distributed in a way that would help people who needed help. That, that, that's really the idea, and that's part of fellowship. There's part of fellowship of getting to know each other, although I will say this. Last week we talked about fellowship, meeting one-on-one outside of the church building. Vitally important. Getting together, talking with one another over a cup of coffee, sharing your burdens with one another, sharing your life, praying for one another, encouraging one another from God's word is vitally important. What we're doing now, the fellowship that we're doing now, is a little bit different. When I meet with somebody one-on-one, that's just me and them. And there's oftentimes things that are shared in that one-on-one that is not meant to go to everybody. And so when I'm praying for people, there's a lot of things that I pray for people that you don't know about. And that's okay. That's kind of the purpose of the one-on-one fellowship. It's kind of personal one-on-one. When we're here, the purpose is for all of us to be thinking the same way to having our minds shaped by God's word and by Christ. The fellowship here is a like-mindedness. Think about it. For the most part, when we were just singing, for the most part, we were all singing the same words, except for me. I, I messed up some of the words. But think about it. How many times throughout the week are you in a room where there are more than five people and you all are saying the same thing, at the same time. How many times do you have that? Not very many. Why is that an important thing? It's an important thing because we see that there's brothers and sisters we're saying the same thing about Jesus together. We're affirming the same truths together. There's a like-mindedness that happens. And as we sing, we hear the voices of other people and we realize that there's other people who are affirming that same truth I'm not alone. I'm in a group of people. That's why we leave the lights on while we sing. We want you to see. We want you to hear. We want you to be able to say there's other people singing these same words. Think about when we pray. How many times is there a place and a time when somebody has a public prayer where we all close our eyes and focus on the Lord and focus on the things that are said? Not too many times. How many times are, do we have a shared an event like this where there's a, we're, we're, we're listening to God's word and, and God's will is being proclaimed and we're all being put on the same page? So this is a different kind of fellowship. Okay? There's another thing that, that we see here in Acts 2.42. It says, and prayers. 
the early church, if we were able to go into like that imagination station and go back in time, right? If we were to see the church and their fellowships, right, all those times that they were outside, I guarantee you most of the time we would catch them praying. That's what we would be doing, right? Remember, the Holy Spirit fell upon the church in the middle of a prayer service, right? Most of the time when we see them together, they're either listening to somebody teach or they're praying, right? Remember when Peter was put under arrest and all the church came to pray and Peter was let out of prison? He knocked on the door and the lady came down and saw Peter and thought it was his ghost and then went back upstairs and said, uh, Peter's ghost is downstairs. And everybody said, uh, that's Peter. <laughs> and they let him in. What were they doing? They were praying. The church is a place of prayer. When we come together, this is a time of prayer. Strong emphasis on prayer. That's why we have multiple prayers throughout the service. It's important that we pray. It's important that we communicate with God and commune with God, and we do that through prayer. It's important that we all say we need your help collectively to teach us your will. It's also important to attend prayer services. Anytime that the church is praying together, we should try to make it a point to come out to that. That's an important thing. It's a very important thing of brothers and sisters coming together and praying to the Lord asking for his leading and his guidance in our life, asking that we we align our wills with his. This, then, is kind of a snapshot. And the rest of the New Testament kind of fills this in. I'm going to go really quick over some of these texts just because we don't have time to go through every single verse. But there's a couple passages that I want you to write down for you to look at when you get home so that you can see some things that, that they did in the early church. And some of the things that, that God requires of us as, 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 as a congregation. And the first would be found in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, starting in, in chapter 11. Uh, we're, we're going to do this later on, but in, in verse 17, Paul gives the instructions about the Lord's Supper. This ordinance. This is something that is to be done regularly. It's to be done in memory of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. We as a church have two ordinances given to us by Jesus, commanded for us to do these. The first is baptism. That's the first ordinance. And the second is the Lord's Supper. We're to do this in memory of him and think about the gospel. Paul gives them kind of guidelines of how this, the theological framework, and he kind of tells them this is how you're supposed to do it. In chapter 12, he then deals with the church as they interact with each other. And he deals with this thing called spiritual gifts. This is really important in church. The Bible teaches that when a person becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're empowered to live for him. And part of this empowerment to edify the body is that we're each given a unique gifting, right? And this gifting is meant to be used to edify each other. In chapter 12, it's very clear the Lord gives you the gift. You don't get to pick it, right? It wasn't like before you sign up, the the Holy Spirit pulls you aside into a special room, gives you this different packages and says, you can have the preacher package or the helper package. No, he distributes it to you. doesn't mean that some of these gifts cannot be developed over time, but, but there is this special empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives to each believer 
that's different from every other believer and is to be used in conjunction with all other believers. It's kind of interesting. In the church of Corinth, they had this interesting fight. They placed a premium on one gift above the other. And that gift was the gift of tongues, which, which has ceased. But at the time when it was in use, the church of Corinth said, if you speak in tongues, you're top dog. If you don't speak in tongues, you're lesser. And the Apostle Paul does this quite comical analogy of saying, imagine if your body did that. Imagine if your foot just one day said, look, I'm not the elbow, therefore I'm, I'm done. I'm out of this body. I'm done with you, right? Or ma- imagine, if, imagine if your forehead said, well, I'm not the mouth. Everybody looks at the mouth. Nobody looks at the forehead. So I'm done. I'm leaving, right? We would all think, that's crazy. No, every, we have body parts, and those body parts work in conjunction with each other. And that's how God has fashioned us together, that we work like a body. We need each other. And interestingly enough, when one part of the body hurts, guess what? The whole body suffers along with it. So is the church, right? And when one body part does something good, guess what? The rest of the body rejoices with it, right? And so Paul gives us this analogy that we're all members with each other. We're all placed into the church, whether you like it or not. You're all given a gift, whether you like it or not. You are obligated to use that gift in conjunction with other gifts for the edification of the church. Paul then in, verse, in chapter 13 talks about what motivates us to use our gift, What's that major motivation and that major virtue that we should have? And this is where he then says, it's love. When we come together, we need to have love. And so when he, when he says Romans 13, yes, he gives this incredible description of love. But you have to realize that this is in the middle of a rebuke saying you're getting church wrong. And so when he's, giving, when he's giving 1 Corinthians 13, he is describing to them the type of love that they should have with one another inside the church. So just notice in 13.4, he says love is patient and kind. It, it, it does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. When we come to church, we should be marked by this kind of love. We should have patience towards one another. We should have kindness towards one another. We shouldn't have envy towards someone else. We shouldn't use these times as times to boast, right? And the list goes on. In chapter 14, then Paul kind of gets down to the nitty-gritty of the actual service itself. And he talks about kind of the, the, the logic behind the service, right? Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's the logic of why we do what we do. And, and the idea is that the Corinthians kind of were not doing this. And he says, first of all, you must know this, that, that a church must be marked by faith, by hope, and by love, and most importantly, love. Okay? That's what we must be marked out with. And when you have faith, hope, and love, especially love, your focus is on the edification of other believers. That's what you're focused on. That's it. This edification then will determine how you use your gift. In this, in this chapter, he talks about there's times where you may not even use your gift because it may not edify he says that, that 
In order to speak in tongues in church, there has to be a translator. And if there's no translator, don't say a word. And Paul says it's far better to say five words that are understandable than 10,000 words which no one understands. So the idea of edification is first understanding what is said, understanding that it's causing us to be more like Christ, understanding that it comes from the truth and it must be understood. He talks about how, in verse 26 of chapter 14, how this must happen in an orderly fashion. The church service must be something that's orderly. It's not just a free-for-all. You just don't, who wants to say something now? Who wants to say something now? Off the spur of a moment. It's ordered, which means that there is some planning and forethought that goes into this. And he says, look, when you come together, each one, in verse 26... Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So notice that the church is meant to use their gifts to edify, but it must be done in a way that edifies, and it must be done in an orderly way. In fact, the Apostle Paul even says, when it comes to somebody speaking in tongues, only two or three are allowed to speak in a service. So all must be done for the edification, right? It must be orderly. There's this sense that it must be done over the, there must be somebody supervising, right? Somebody who has discernment, who's supervising, who's able to correct, who's able to kind of direct the service. It's incredible. There's another passage uh, that talks about when we come together. I think it's Hebrews 10, 19 through 31. Just briefly in this text, it tells us that we, we come to God on the basis of Christ and off of a true heart because of salvation. And that church is meant to come together so that we hold fast to Christ. That it's all about the truthfulness and doctrine of Christ. And as we come together, we should come together looking how we can stimulate one another to love and good deed. That's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're coming together. How can I edify my brother? How can I edify my sister? And, and he says this, this involves the encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as you could tell, this coming together, yes, it's based off of truth. And yes, there is, there is a, as we'll see in the pastoral epistles here shortly, there's a strong emphasis on the teaching ministry of the church. That's important. But also realize this too, that church is not a spectator sport. You are to come thinking, how can I edify someone this morning? How can I come? When I come to church, how can I edify somebody? How can I encourage somebody? How can I show my love to someone? Right? That, that's the type of thing that we're supposed to be doing when we come together. Sometimes, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, sometimes that edification means I'm not going to do something that's a distraction to others. Right? Sometimes the way I edify is not being a distraction. That's important. Sometimes that means I do need to talk. Sometimes that means I need to say something to somebody, encourage somebody. Now, the, the lion's share of what talks about what we're supposed to do in a church service is found in the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so for the next 85 hours, we will be going through these verse by verse. No, I, I would encourage everyone to read these pastoral epistles. I'm going to quickly go through these with you just a helicopter view because there's some important things to help us understand what we do when we come together. So understand this in 1 Timothy, 
Paul says to Timothy, look, when we come together, the most important thing is love. Everything we do is based off of love. He talks about how in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, that if we're doing things by love, and if, and if we are doing things with the, with the right interpretations, that, that would drive us to pray. And Paul tells Timothy to pray for everyone. Pray for everyone. Pray for everyone that they may walk closer to Jesus Christ, right? In chapter 3, he talks about, about the importance of elders and deacons and even deaconesses. And he talks about the hierarchy of the church and who are the leaders of the church and, and, and talks about their qualifications. Later on in the book, he's going to talk about some of their job descriptions. But it's important to realize that there's a hierarchy in the church, that there's elders and there's deacons and there's deaconesses, and that these are qualified people. They are qualified people of character because the church is about this incredible truth of Jesus Christ. And if we're not people of character as leadership, it may undermine the message of Jesus. And so we're about the message of Jesus. That's it, Jesus. In chapter 4, it's interesting, he talks about some of the things that, uh, of the service, and, and, and specifically of Timothy himself. But notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believer an example in speech and conduct and love in faith and purity. This means that not only the pastor, but the elders, the deacons, and the deaconesses, they are to be an example of what a mature believer looks like in the way that we talk, in the way that we react, in the way that we do things. We are an example. doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means we're an example, right? And then he says, until I come, devote yourself to. So, so he's telling them, Timothy, you're the pastor of the church of Ephesus. This is what you do when you get together with the church. And notice what he says. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that, you may, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Notice the emphasis. The emphasis is on the reading and the teaching, Right? And it is very clear that Paul not only tells Timothy what to read, but he gives him an outline of how he is to preach. And for, since this was written, the first couple hundred years of the church, this was seen as the method of preaching. You pick a particular text, you read that text out loud, you teach the text, and you exhort the text. For the first couple hundred years... That's what everybody did when it came time to preach, right? It wasn't until after that some other things came in that the emphasis on the scriptural reading and the teaching and exhortation began to wane. But this is the apostolic uh, tradition. Then in chapter 5, he talks about how to instruct the church. And the, the idea is basically how do you take care of different people inside of the church what's the role of young people? What's, how do you treat older people? 
Chapter 6, he talks about beware of false teachers. By the way, that's an important thing that's happening here. Not only are we teaching you what to think, but we're teaching you what not to think, right? That's also important. And then there's encouragement to continue on. 2 Timothy is once again the second letter from Paul to Timothy. Here it's more dealing with the character and philosophy of ministry of the pastor. And the pastor is to stand as a guard and as a soldier in the first two chapters, to, to stand up against false teaching, to make sure that he's talking about Christ. He talks about um, be, be, be careful because there's going to be a lot of people that want to do a lot of different things. But as the leader, you need to make sure that you're driving the church in the right way. And he says, and he then explains, how do you do that? So go with me to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And this is then the charge, not only to the pastor, but to the elder. This is what we think about as elders. This is our charge. We will stand before God and give an account to how we did this job. So notice what he says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who's the judge, the living, and the dead. By the way, that scares me, the fact that I have to stand before God, who's the judge, who knows all my intentions, right? Now, I know that I'm in Christ and there's no condemnation, but that doesn't lessen the responsibility that I still have to answer to him with how I use my time. And by the appearing of his kingdom, notice what he says, preach the word. It it should stand alone, by the way, and it should be all in capital letters in the English, and it should end with an exclamation point because it's a command. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but wanting to have their ears, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away into myth. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, what's the job of the pastor? What's his primary thing? The word. That, that's, that's it. The preaching and teaching of the word. In fact, there was a scenario where there was a problem inside of the church in Acts chapter 6. What did the elders do? They said, we need to have deacons because the elders need to focus on the word and prayer. And these things need to be done, and so there need to be people to help get these things done. This tells us that the priority of coming together is to listen to God. God's will. It's coming together to listen about Jesus. It's coming together to encourage people on what they just heard when they heard something from God's word. That's what we're doing. We're encouraging each other to do the thing that we're exhorted to do from his word. Then we have the book of Titus. We spent some time in the book of Titus. Titus is an interesting book. Titus is an interesting man. You can go back and listen to that. But he says some of the same things. Notice that there's the qualifications of elders in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he talks about the teaching of the church and, and what that looks like. By the way, there is a strong emphasis as well as mature believers teaching immature believers. And when those immature believers become mature, they are then to go and teach immature believers. There's this idea of a constant discipleship inside of the church. There's a constant growing, constant teaching. Now, there's a lot more that, we could, that could be said, and I'm already a little bit over time. But you probably are saying, well, there's some things that we do a lot of 
that you didn't even talk about. And why is that? Like, for example, music. We do a lot of music. Notice, I didn't talk a lot about music. I'll tell you why. One, the New Testament doesn't talk a lot about music. It does talk a lot about praising God. And so I think that we could easily say that praising God, uh, you know, the, as we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit and the Scripture causes us to have melody, to make melody in our heart. In fact, there's even, there's even evidence uh, that passages of Scripture that Paul writes, he's quoting from popular hymns. So, for example, Psalm 2.5 is, is believed to be a popular hymn that they would sing. Um, although I imagine if we all transported ourselves back to the early church and listened to their music, we would say, that doesn't sound like music. They did things a lot different back then. A lot of it was chanting. We don't do a lot of chanting. And I think that there is some room inside of the New Testament that there can be some cultural expressions, like the way that we sing some of these hymns. I don't think there's anything wrong because people can hear the words, they can be edified by the words, and it's a cultural expression of our praise to God. However, here is the big warning that I give to myself, I give to Greg, I give to the deacons, and I give to you. We should not be too creative. When people of God start becoming too creative start saying, well, I think I want to do this, and the Bible doesn't give us express permission to do it, I think we should be scared the next step that we take. We should look at what the Scripture says are the important things, and we should say, that's the emphasis. Devoted on the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to the ordinances, right? to giving and helping one another. That, those are the things that we should focus on. Praising God is an important thing that we should focus on. But let's not get too crazy and carried away. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth in in the first couple chapters wrote to them. And one of the things he says is, I write to you so that you do not exceed what is written. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians says, I give the tradition, anyone who goes against the tradition will have to answer to it, or will have to answer to God himself. So though I think there is some cultural expression that can happen, we must be very careful, because I think God has outlined very carefully and detailedly what our church service should look like, and it's our job to follow that. At this time, we're going to do one of those ordinances. We're going to spend some time thinking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is the purpose of why we come. We come because we love Jesus. If, I, if, if, if I'm not, if I'm not um, motivated to come to church because of my love for Jesus and for God, I might have the wrong reason of being here. And so we have this incredible opportunity to have these symbols in front of us to remind us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have an awesome opportunity that as we're thinking and as we're contemplating and as we're listening to the musicians play songs that we're familiar with the words, we have an opportunity to celebrate the fact that not only did Jesus save us, but he placed us inside of a church 
And as he placed us inside of a church, we can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and become more like his son. And we can worship him. We can truly worship. So I'm going to ask the musicians and